and welcome to episode 119 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we are going to be talking about, in our first half, amateur or professional? Which sleuths do we prefer? And in the second part, we're going to be comparing two novels by female writers. So the first one is Women Talking by Miriam Taves. Um, we have done some research on how to pronounce her surname. We apologise if we've got it wrong. Um, and another surname I'm probably going to say wrong in the next one. Um, Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tokarczuk. So, Simon, how are you? What are you reading? What's going on with you? Thanks. Yeah, I've just had a week in Keswick, as I just mentioned before we started the call, uh, which for those who don't know is in the Lake District up in the north of England, um, which is a beautiful, beautiful part of the world, uh, sort of Wordsworth, Coleridge country. Um, but it was quite wet most of the time. We had a couple mm-hmm. of nice days. I was there with work, but, but with plenty of time to, in, to sort of enjoy the scenery and um, yeah, just enjoy not being at the office, I guess. It's always nice to have something a bit different. Uh, and I'm going to talk, Rachel, if I may, about three books that I've read recently because I've really liked all of them. Wow. Um, yeah, they're quite all very, quite, very different. The first is actually a podcast listener who got in touch, Sheena Wilkinson, um, who's having a book. Uh, she's written a book, but it's published with HarperCollins. Um, or possibly, I mean, the, the copy I've got is HarperCollins Ireland, but I think, I assume it must be both um, Ireland and the UK, but who knows? It's called Mrs. Hart's Marriage Bureau. And she thought we might both like it. So you're welcome to her, or if you'd like. Uh, and I very much did like it. It's um, set in the 1930s. Uh, and there's a young Irish woman called April McVeigh who comes to England and uh, gets a job at, at Mrs. Hart's Marriage Bureau, which is a little bureau in a small community, essentially in the days before dating apps and, and all these sorts of things. It was a way of setting up people who were looking to get married. Uh, April is always very insistent that she will never get married. Um, but will that remain true when she meets the young man in the village? That's the sort of one of the three threads of uh, the novel. But um, I just, I, yeah, you know how I, I don't always love novels set in the 1930s if they're not written in the 1930s, but I really enjoyed Sheena Wilkinson's writing and April's such a lively, fun character. Uh, and it's such an interesting idea for a book. Um, so that's one. Really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, Secondly, you will know that I'm a very big Michael Cunningham fan and had read everything he published. So I was very excited to get sent a copy of his new novel, oh. which is just called Day. So he's done the hours. He's done it on today. We'll see what's next. Um, and it is, I don't think it's published yet. I'm not sure exactly when it's out, but it's set uh, in the morning, afternoon and evening of April 19th. But the morning is, or might not be 19th, April something, but the morning is in 2019, the afternoon is in 2020 and the evening is in 2021. Ooh, and it's yeah it's and it's, it's what he does great he, what he does best is communities of people who are both family and friends but he's really good at little communities and their sort of language that they share and the feelings that they all have or don't have for each other this particular one is a couple and their two young children and the wife's brother who lives with them as well and i just i loved it all it was wonderful um that's number two and number three uh author you love as well rc sheriff i just read his autobiography called No Leading Lady, um, which it is a reference, I guess, to the fact that he never got married, but also a reference to the fact that his most famous play, Journey's End, doesn't have a leading lady. And I I absolutely love the fact that 
he spent the first 200 pages of the book, which is only 350 pages, talking about Journey's End from Genesis through its, you know, looking like it would never be put on. Uh, people, they thought nobody had an appetite f- for plays about the war. There was no leading lady uh, to it becoming this huge success and then going to Hollywood and all these things. And he's just such a consummate storyteller in any mode. And he's exactly the same in autobiography. And I just, I liked that it was all about his writing. I'm not very interested in authors' childhoods often. I just want them to get to the point of why I'm interested in them. And he does that wonderfully. It's not in print and it's quite hard to get hold of, but if you can, it's absolutely wonderful. Okay, well, I mean, I shall try and get hold of that because I love R.C. Sherry. Yeah, I was lucky to stumble across it in a little bookshop in Marylebone but, um, because I don't know it was for £5, pounds, but it was on- online, it's nearly 100 So um, keep your eyes peeled. Wow. Uh, so yeah, I'm on. I'm having a real run of great, great, really enjoyable books at the moment. I love it when that happens. I know it really gives you a sort of zest for like, oh, what next? This is great because, in the conversely, if you have a few reads, whether they're all bad or they're just a bit ordinary, you think, did I ever love reading as much as I thought I did? <laughs> and then <laughs> things like this remind me that yes, yes, I do. Well, I'm very happy. They all sound really good, actually. I shall have to look out for all of those. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And what have you been reading? Well, I mean, I've also had a pretty good run, actually. Um, I I kept meaning to text you about about this one. So a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember why I was there or what I was doing, the joys of getting older. But um, I <laughs> on Charing Cross Road, I must have just been, why would I have been there? I don't know. I can't remember. Anyway, I was around Charing Cross Road. I mean, I do live in London, so unsurprising. Um and I just popped into a bookshop, one of the secondhand bookshops. Um, I think it was any amount of books. And I thought, I'll just have a quick browse. Hadn't been in there for ages. And they have dramatically reduced their um, offerings in the basement, which is where they're sort of hardback, uh. old hardback are, which is sad. Um, but, you know, I thought, well, I'll have a browse anyway. And I came across a book on the shelf that looked intriguing, had a sort of marbled dust jacket, looked a little bit like a um, Margarita Lasky sort of novel. So I picked mm. it up. And it's called The Dark Fantastic by um, Margaret Shard. And it sounded intriguing. It was set in the 19th century in America about a woman who um, kind of infiltrates a family and um, manages to kind of destroy them and herself from the inside. And is she delusional? Is she... Um, you know, she's imagining stuff, is it real, etc. I was like, oh, this sounds intriguing. Um, so I bought it on a whim, thinking, you know, what's to lose? And I started reading it on the bus home and was just absolutely hooked, couldn't put it down for the next two days. And oh, wow. um, absolutely wonderful. So it was written in the 50s and I, I looked up the author. So she's American and, and she was actually largely a screenwriter in Hollywood back in the in the day and this novel is has you know really fallen out of print and all of her novels actually have fallen by the wayside quite hard to get hold of I think probably easier to get hold of in the US than here but um I would highly recommend it absolutely brilliant and I was thinking gosh this would make a really good British library um book though I don't know whether you publish American authors do you we can do yeah so who, what was the author again sorry Margaret Eschard so E-C-H-A-R-D is the surname so yeah if anyone's read any more of her work maybe some of our American listeners might have heard of her um then I'd be interested to hear about some of her other stuff it, it's like proper kind of you know domestic noir really enjoyable 
That sounds wonderful. You say it's set in the 19th century? Yes, so it's set after the Civil War. Ah, Sadly, I mean, that's one of the things that might preclude it from the British Library series, because we can do American authors, but they're meant to be books that are about when they're written. Uh, because I meant to like comment on that period but that won't stop me trying to get a copy because it sounds wonderful yeah I think you would love it um yeah so that was one book that I absolutely loved I also um what else did I read that was wonderful I mean I've just I've happened across a lot of interesting stuff lately um I really enjoyed reading um again just picked it up in the bookshop because I thought the other day because I thought oh I really must read this and I haven't um it was Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking which very sad but also very beautiful book about grief and um sort of you know how do you cope when things when something happens to you that's completely unexpected and I just thought it was really beautifully written. I never read anything by her before, but lots of people have always said, oh, it's like such an amazing example of nonfiction, um, really great memoir. So I thought, oh, yeah, that's I'll read that. So that's another American writer, actually, but on an American role. Um, and I've just finished rereading Frankenstein, which I'm going to be teaching um, when I go back to be teaching very shortly. And I was just reminded what a ridiculous novel it is I was just like <laughs> I was gonna say what do you because I find it I found it such a boring novel what, what yeah. do you think about it it's, it intrigues me actually because it's interesting how it's become so famous and such a a kind of I, I guess iconic fit the figure of the monster and not and a lot of people confuse and think Frankenstein is the monster obviously Frankenstein is the creator but actually, the monster doesn't feature hugely in the novel at all. And it's 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 really just like the, I just find the whole thing bizarre. The frame narrative, I find ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that I have a real issue with 19th century frame narratives in that sort of needing to suspend your disbelief that someone has literally sat there transcribing word for word what someone else has said and what that other person is saying is a perfect recollection of every conversation they've had over the last 20 20- and they can also recite to you exactly what was in a letter that somebody sent to them. I mean, it's the, the power of these people's memories is just beyond my belief. <laughs> it, so that kind of structure really bothers me. But I do think it's interesting from a literary analysis perspective and from a kind of, if you're interested in the development of the, of the novel as a form over time, because you really see in these early novels the clumsiness of a lot of literary devices to try and give the reader information in a way that, uh, we would just wouldn't do nowadays like for example writing in a letter oh you remember margaret to my sister who i grew up with yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was really interested in doing x y and z it's like yeah but and now you know we've obviously come up with different ways in in how you would you would do that in a way that feels more natural and, and that fits with the narrative but then i suppose there weren't as many examples to draw on of, of how how would you do that how would you convey this information so it's yeah. uh, yeah, it's interesting to look at from that perspective. Is it a novel I love? Do I think that the writing is amazing? Um, no, um, but it's interesting to. It's an interesting thing to teach. I, it's not an interesting thing for me to read. I, I feel very similarly about Wuthering Heights as I do to Frankenstein. Interesting to teach, a bore to read. <laughs> well, I wrote about it in my doctorate because I wrote a, a chapter on creation narratives. Um, in obviously the ones I was writing about being a, about novels between the world wars, what mm. wasn't 
Frankenstein itself, but it was more Frankenstein as sort of the er novel of that genre. So I wrote about um, The Love Child by Edith Olivier that we've done on this yes. podcast in the past. Uh, the Venetian Glass Nephew by Eleanor Wiley is another one. Um, and yeah, it is it is really interesting to see um, that sort of quest for science and knowledge being replaced by primarily relationship uh, in the later sort of, you know, how many years later. Um, and no longer like again it's that sort of quest for authenticity it's like here's how he did it and it could happen whereas in by the time you get to the 1920s it's just like it happened don't think about it yeah um, <laughs> don't try and work out exactly why it doesn't matter yeah uh, which you know i much more appreciate i guess it's the difference in some ways between sci-fi and not sci-fi i don't know i'm <laughs> going to shaky territory because i don't know anything about sci-fi but, yeah. no yeah. not my genre surprisingly enough <laughs> um we should get on to the first topic but i just want before we get there say um what you mentioned to me just before we came on the podcast is that you were finally doing something that every bibliophile in the uk particularly should have done already what are you going to do rachel yes so in fact this time next week i shall be in hey on why which is the book, book mecca of the uk i'm very very excited and um i'm driving there in my own car because precisely because I anticipate buying far too many books to <laughs> get back on public transport. So um, I'm yeah really excited and looking forward to reporting back on what I find. I'm trying not to get my expectations up too high. Yes, that's probably wise. I mean, I, I've always I've never come away without piles of books, but you know me. I <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I I have faith that the cinema bookshop will uh, will be fruitful for you. Wow. We'll see. Very excited. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, our next episode, you have to um, update us. I shall. Yeah. So, first topic. Uh, do you want to talk, to talk to us about it? Yeah, this is my idea. So, could go badly wrong. We'll see. But, um, interested to think about in terms of mystery novels. Both of ours. I mean, I'm not sure I would call Women Talking a mystery novel, though there is a sort of element of it, as in who has done these things. But I mean, it's obvious from the start. But Drive Your Plow is certainly a, a mystery novel in loose terms. But interested to think about when we're reading mystery novels, a lot of the time, who is conducting the investigation dictates the form of the novel and dictates how the story goes and also how we connect with the characters. And whether that person carrying out the investigation is somebody who's doing it in a professional capacity or whether that person is doing it as an amateur and is doing so because of a personal investment in or connection to the case, I think can add um, a very different angle on the on the novel that you're reading and a very different relationship that the author, uh, the reader ends up having with the events. So I just thought it could be interesting to discuss and there's also, I think, perhaps a debate to be had with some people as as to what uh, constitutes an amateur. Mm. Because, for example, um, you know, some people would describe um, some fictional detectives as being amateurs, but actually they have so much experience that they would never be considered, you know, it's not like just, you know, me turning up and being like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, like, um Sherlock Holmes could technically be considered an amateur. He's got no official training and he's not connected to a, you know, he is not his, he doesn't have a badge to prove who he is, etc. Um, you know, likewise with Poirot. 
So, um, you know, how how are we going to define that and um, how would people define that is also something we could maybe explore. Yeah, and it's in, it's, it's easy to forget, I guess, that the amateur detective was quite a uh, sort of uh, revelation, I guess, when it came along in the golden age of detective fiction. But but it was quite it happened so early in the formulation of the genre and became so dominant that it, I guess it's lost that sense of oh my gosh, I can't believe an ordinary person is working this out rather than a police detective or yeah. or a private detective or whoever. Um, and when I was trying to think about these, I found it really hard to think of any from the golden age at least that were about professionals um often the policeman is this there is sort of a hapless outsider or someone that the amateur is going to score points off i think if we look more today it's sort of the the division in some ways between crime and detective fiction which is an episode that i did ages ago with karen when you went around for an episode um where you know the crime novel is quite often like a police procedural or something like that whereas cozy crime you you now expect it to be an amateur or perhaps there just isn't a detective at all it's just things happen and then eventually it's revealed who did it um but yeah i mean all the all the classic people i can think of either people who had some professional um credentials like poirot but were retired uh or a professional in some sphere but not as a detective uh or you know the miss marples the uh lord peter whimsies the 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 obvious amateurs who have all sorts of um, personality qualifications, but no, no technical qualifications. Mm. I think something that's um, a series that's that's interesting to me that that kind of blends the two. I don't know if you've read any of them, but Kate Kate Atkinson's Jackson Brody novels. Mm, yeah, yeah. Jackson Brody is a former policeman. Um, he is a private detective. But they aren't—they aren't police novels. They're not crime novels. They are um, what we would consider to be detective novels. He—he he does detective work, and he's employed by people to do that. But then, while in the course of looking at one case, always other things end up cropping up, and he ends up becoming embroiled in in various situations um, where he's having to kind of solve things that he wasn't intending on on getting involved with. So there's an element of sort of bumbling around. But also, um, it's for, there's very much a sense that this is a professional assignment for him, and he's not personally personally involved in the. You know, he doesn't know the victims. He doesn't. You know, he's not necessarily um, connected to any of them in in any way. Though actually, as as the novels progress, often those connections do do start to appear. So, I find those a real blend of the two, and I, I think Kate Atkinson does something quite unique in him as a character and in those novels in general. I mean, I just will always sing Kate Watkinson's praises because I think she's brilliant. But um, those for me are real kind of, yeah, genre bending. And I think it would be interesting to see more of those because you're right when you say there's this kind of cosy crime category. I think it's becoming even more popular now. I see so many of them in the shops and um, for certainly for British listeners, we, we've got, you know, Richard Osman, um reverend richard coles you know all of these people kind of picking up that kind of alexander mccall smith baton of these sorts of cozy crimes with um somebody a very kind of characterful central character and an interesting premise of being set somewhere so like richard osmond's is set in a old people's home and um 
Richard Coles, I think, is in a in a little parish, and the Alexander McCall Smith's ones are are in Botswana. So, um, it's interesting how we see you've got the kind of cozy crime where it's sort of enjoyable to read, and we're not getting connected, and there's no goriness. But then there's also people love the crime stuff where you do have the police as the main character, and it's very much about the procedure of how you're going to solve this crime and there's lots of gore and all that sort of thing yeah i think it's interesting what you said um there about the personal connection because even amateurs often don't have a personal connection simply because if they're serious detectives it would be too coincidental for everyone they know to be to be bumped up so maybe they'll start a series by someone they know and that's how they're on the scene um, or it's someone in their village or something. Uh, but then it, there's un- increasingly unlikely reasons that they're on the scene. Um, I, I know these aren't books, but it always makes me think of Rosemary and Time. Do you yeah. ever watch that? Um, yeah. Felicity Kendall and Pam Ferris being gardeners who just everywhere they went, someone got murdered and then they worked out who did it. But it's like, well, for some point, you'd stop hiring them as gardeners, surely, <laughs> <laughs> given their track record. Um, and there, I was trying to, I mean, there are some in the British Library crime classics which are. I guess we count as cozy crime, but are professionals. I can't remember who wrote them, but the Sergeant Cliff, Sergeant Clough um, series. Oh. I'll put it in the notes. But yeah, I've I've only read one of them, and I don't. To be honest, I don't remember anything about it. Um, I think there is that thing. If it is a professional, and uh, there are again, there are others that are about policemen. There are others about detectives. Unless unless that character is really weird or stands out in some way, it doesn't. Then it is just it's another police novel. Uh, yeah. Whereas. There was definitely a period when they were, and maybe it's still going, where they were trying to think of the most unlikely and unusual detective. So Miss Marple was like the first time an elderly lady was the detective. You, then you get the Mrs. Bradley Mysteries by Gladys Mitchell, where she's just this very eccentric, um, very inter, um, what's the word, Freudian psychoanalysis and stuff, and or, yeah, very just very odd. Or you know, Poirot was quite odd. Uh, and it's all about making the detective as distinctive and weird yeah. as possible. Um, or not, not like self self consciously weird, I guess, but trying to like give them some eccentricities or idiosyncrasies that that mean they're not like the the boring policeman. Whereas if you try and do that and they're a policeman or policewoman, then um, I think that that's a sort of weird blend that that doesn't feel as successful because there's something about the amateur that in inherently has them being rogue or um or just not going by by the book maybe not you know the uh maybe not offensively so miss martha's obviously not going by the book but not in a way that upsets anybody but uh there's something about rule breaking that in british fiction at least seems to, to go that way either between you know the rule breaker is the amateur you get more of the like maverick cop in the hardboard american crime novel maybe um then certainly in that in that mid-century period yeah it's it's i think it's really interesting what you say there about that the idea of of the amateur detective as being someone who can break the rules someone who can be a renegade someone who also is inconspicuous and can be in places Mm -hmm. who is a professional can't be because questions would be asked you know why are you here why are you coming in oh you need a warrant to be here etc etc whereas um somebody like miss marple for example 
she can go and you know pop to the village shop and overhear some gossip or something like that 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 could be interesting whereas people are on their guard around professionals they're not going to be as as open about uh, talking about things and being mm-hmm. a bit cautious so I, I think there's there's also something uh, about the the sort of amateur detective as being an outsider to some extent somebody who is often considered to be I guess I'm thinking about Poirot and, and Miss Marple in particular someone who people discount or feel like they can say things to because yeah. they're, they're not somebody who matters in a way mm-hmm. um, and again, I think when you're a professional, that that doesn't happen so much. And I, I think that's probably why the the genre developed these kind of amateur detectives because it solves all sorts of problems um, in a in a novel. It's like the advent of trains allowed detective fiction to pl- prof- uh, proliferate in the way that it did because without trains, you can't feasibly get people across the country quickly enough. And it's the same with amateur detectives. Without amateur detectives, you can't have people hearing and saying things that they would never otherwise say to somebody who's got a uniform on, um, who's wandering around in the village or, you know, having a cup of coffee in the Lions Cafe or whatever, you know. So it's um, it's an interesting one. But I also, I mean, you probably know more about this than I do, but if we're thinking about golden age fiction, is there something kind of cultural that necessitates a move away from, um, I, I guess institutions or officialdom in some way that there's something attractive to people writing at that time about taking power away from institutions and giving it to the individual. That's interesting. I mean, there's something to be said about I see, the rise of detective fiction now in, in the UK, at least, and in the 20s and 30s, where it is times of turmoil and economic instability, and uh, yeah, maybe it's a time when people will need that. Um, sense both of the the sort of neatness of uncertainty of like this novel will get to the end and tell me who did it um but also yeah that dis maybe that distrust of institutional powers that aren't serving us um not to be political about this <laughs> not necessarily singling out any particular political party but it's um obviously a time at the moment of in- instability in, in the world in many ways and yeah. maybe that want, want that stability of the, the ordinary person managing to to succeed to get neat answers and you know to win against the baddies yeah it's interesting isn't it i mean do you find yourself reading police novels do you find yourself reading ones where they there are professional um detectives or or do you always gravitate towards the amateur um certainly if i was reading a modern novel uh, i would probably not want the police one because just I would just assume it would be gorier. Yeah. Uh, and as you said, it often is, or it might be, you know, a pathologist or it yes. might be, yeah, a crime scene investigation, that sort of thing. And and I just don't want the gore. I don't mind that it's the police officer. But, but in the golden age, I wouldn't be that fuzzy. I think, um, you know, I often just take a book off my British library shelves, British library crime classics, more or less at random. And sometimes it's a police detective, sometimes it's not. Um, I, I think... Um, I probably would be drawn, giving away my answer, more to the to the amateur if I if I knew, but I but I'm not too put off by being a policeman. I think it's a, like you mentioned Sherlock Holmes. I think he definitely is a professional because he's running a detective agency, isn't he? So like he might not have credentials other than his own self belief uh, and some very fortunate plotting. I mean, I enjoy Sherlock Holmes, but his his brilliance is often makes no sense at all. Um, there's often many other explanations for the things that have led him to certainty, but. Uh, 
but yeah, certainly like a private detective or something, I would I'd find that equally fun. I think it's something about the apparatus of uh, of police work that maybe I don't find as interesting. But the private detective, whether that's Sherlock Holmes or like the number one lady detective agency or something a bit more unusual like that, um, I think that's really fun because in some ways the private detective is just the amateur who has set themselves up with the business, isn't it? It's not got the institution oh, behind them. Yeah, exactly. And and you know they they have no rights necessarily to be in a mm-hmm. more in the way that a a policeman would. I think it's interesting what you say about sort of British Library crime classics because thinking about it, a lot of them do have policemen as central characters. I think a couple that we read quite recently for the for the um, podcast. That's true. Yeah, policeman in. Um, I forget the name of it, but the one where um, there was it was was it Quick Curtain? They were that was by that's right. Um, yeah, Alan Melville. So that had a policeman and his son as as the main detective character, and I found that really interesting. But you never actually saw the policeman that go to work or anything like that. It was all conducted out of the workplace. So that was a a, a good, uh, I think, a, a good and an interesting way of dealing with that problem of how do you how do you manage an official person being in a space where people are going to be wary of officialdom? Oh well, he's a plain clothes police uh, detective. Okay, fine, mm-hmm. I find that so. I, I enjoy the understanding more about how the the job itself works. I think there's a there's always an interest, isn't there, in understanding about how other professions do their jobs, um, and I think that's why police dramas on TV are so popular and, and hospital dramas and things. People enjoy um, understanding it from a, a different perspective and, and seeing these jobs that you think, oh, I might, you know, what, what would my life be like if I were a policeman or that kind of thing, but. Um, I think reading about it is perhaps a little bit less interesting. I like seeing it, but I don't necessarily want to read all the minutiae of, you know, sitting at a desk and going through folders and, and whatnot. Um, I read the only police novels I read are Simenon, um, Georges Simenon novel. Um, and that's just without me sounding um, like a knob, but it's I read them to practice my French. So I read them in French. Um, I wouldn't read them in English. So it's okay. I've yeah, I've only read one in English. I can't remember much about it except I did like it, and it was it was a lot uh, more feminist than I was expecting. But apparently, that's not necessarily um, universal in in his work. No, I wouldn't say so. No, um, certainly, certainly not feminist in French. I could tell you that much. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm not sure I would read the Megray novels in in English, but again, they're they're interesting as well because he's often he doesn't play by the rules. So it's that you're getting a little bit of the amateur characteristic in a in an official. So um, yeah, I think for me, I well, I guess we're getting to the point of deciding. Yeah, yeah. I prefer uh, an amateur detective because I like the fact that they have access to every space, and there's also the pleasure of of seeing somebody often who's perhaps overlooked or considered to be mm. un by other people in their world actually be the person who's got the most intelligence and and the most insight and um is able to to do that because precisely because people underestimate them yeah and i'm going to join you also on amateur yes thank you um the you do have a question from sheila for the middle section um and she was asking about favorite novels where people travel through various countries. So you know, set in more than one country. 
Well, I mean, can you guess the first thing I'm going to say? I'm trying to think, how many countries does Emma go to? Yeah, um, Emma sadly never leaves Britain. Uh, so I leave the county, but yeah. Um, she does go on a journey to the sea for her honeymoon at the end of the novel. Oh, but... True. Spoilers. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think anyone will be surprised that Emma gets married, will they? Um, <laughs> um, I feel like I should know what you're going to choose. Well, I'll but put I've you got, out of your... blank. As soon as I say it, you'll be like, oh, yes. Um, Illyrian Spring by Anne Bridge. Oh, of course. Yes, 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 yes. Well, that's only one country, isn't it? Do they go to more than one country? They go to several countries in modern geography anyway because they travel through um, Italy and Croatia, um, Uh which I think perhaps the – and possibly also Montenegro – um, which I think probably the borders have slightly changed since Ambridge wrote the novel. But yes, um, I'm sure yeah, they travel along the Dalmatian coast and um, it's one of the most blissful, wonderful novels you could ever read about a woman, an older woman and a younger man who form a friendship. They're both at a point in their lives where they are escaping from something. So um, the main character, Grace, is her marriage is falling apart and the Nicholas, the boy that he was also travelling, is wanting to pursue a career as an artist and his his father doesn't want him to, so he sort of runs away. And Grace is also an artist and they meet on the boat over to um, Italy and they end up travelling together and it's a wonderful depiction of um, personal growth and change over um, the opportunity while travelling and... Also a lovely example of a platonic relationship between a man and a woman. Yes, and I think we did an episode on it at some point that, um, yeah. back in the past, so people can go and listen to. Yeah. Um, I don't think any of the books that I normally bring up were set up in more than one country, so I can't, you know, go off my usual provincial lady slash Miss Hargrove's uh, spiel. But uh, the two that I was thinking of, um, hopefully this is correct, the Sybil Bedford novel, is it? A legacy, whichever is the first of the two that are a pair. Um, oh, I believe Evan has a mother and daughter. Sorry, say again? Are you thinking of the favourite of the gods? I am thinking of favourite of the gods, I think, yes. Does that yeah. start with a mother and daughter going on a train through various countries? Yes, it does, yeah. Yes, so I remember it was a long train journey. I wasn't completely sure it was multiple countries, but yes, it is. Um, so I think of that long journey. And I mean, it's yeah, it goes back and forth, I think, in... Oh, it um, might be Campus Era, actually. It might be the second one that does that. Is it? I get them blurred, blurred in my mind. One, a Sybil Bedford novel is yeah. my answer to that. And the other one is um, Travels with My Aunt by Graham Greene. Oh. It goes yeah. all over the world with a very funny novel. Uh, and the aunt is a wonderful character. Graham Greene I have uh, mixed success with, but um, that's one of the fun ones rather than one of the bleak ones. Yes. I will also Although throw... I- um, Olivia Manning's Balkan and Levant tri- trilogies. Oh yes, of course. During World War Two, um, very loosely loosely based on Olivia Manning's own life and marriage, um, where you've got two characters who are um, moving around between different countries due to the war. So the first trilogy, um, they move between Romania and Greece, and in the second one which i haven't read i believe it's israel egypt um and potentially 
somewhere else. Um, so yeah, those are those are really interesting books as well because they are they give a glimpse into World War Two in European countries that you don't often read about. Um, so yeah, really highly recommended. There we go, Sheila. I hope that those um, some suggestions will help you yeah. in your reading journey. Uh, see what I did there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yes, on to these two uh two novels i guess yes uh I don't, i'm breaking down i'll cut some of this <laughs> on to our two books we're talking about uh shall i introduce drive for your bones drive your plow for the bones of the dead is that all right yeah. yes right yeah very good i mean i don't mind either way but um that book by olga tokarczyk translated by antonia lloyd jones um is about a woman called janina although she doesn't like that name uh, who lives in Poland, which is where the you know, book's originally in Polish. Uh, and she is an older woman. She has got some severe illness. That we're, never, we're never sure exactly what. Um, and she's quite antisocial, but a bit misanthropic, but is still sort of involved in the community. And is it in that community where various men start being found killed? Um, it's, uh, yeah, very loosely, I guess, a crime novel but um but that doesn't really give the impression of what it actually is which is a sort of a reflection on life and on f- philosophy and what it is to be a woman and w- what rights animals should have that's very central to it mm-hmm. um and just i guess a portrait of of eccentricity and trying to uh to align oh, very very in very many ways a very moral novel but in quite an unusual way i guess yes um very interesting novel, very well described. Um, Women Talking by Miriam Taves is uh, based on a true story about a group of um, Mennonite um, women living in um, a, I guess, what are they, what what would we call it? Like A, is a it colony, a, isn't it? A colony, yeah. yes, thank you. Um, a colony in Bolivia, um, and they have gathered together over the course of of a couple of I think it's 24 hours in a barn to discuss what they're going to do after having found out that the um, nightmares visitations etc that they've been having over the last few years that have been explained away as being the work of the devil have actually been um, the men of the colony repeatedly raping um, many of the women and girls and the men have been hauled off to the city to go to the police. Um, and while the men are away, they have got 24 hours to decide whether they're going to stay, whether they're going to stay and fight, or whether they are going to leave and take their children with them. So um, the the novel is, is literally the women talking. Though, um, interestingly, there is the framing of the narrative is actually through the voice of a ma- of a man, um, who is the this boy's school teacher, and because the women cannot write, he has been asked to come and um, kind of chair the meeting and make uh, minute them. Um, so yeah, for some people listening, may know of the book because it was also recently made into a film. Yes, well, nominated for best picture Oscar, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um, why don't you ask me something to start with? Yeah, so Olga Tokarczuk, it's a novel that was 
had a lot of buzz certainly in the UK a few years ago um and very unusual novel maybe not one you would normally read what did you what did you think of it what were your impressions yeah as you say it had a lot of buzz and Olga Tkachuk won the Pulitzer Prize didn't she or was it the Nobel Prize for Literature maybe it's a Nobel Nobel Prize for Literature yes Pulitzer American isn't it um and uh I don't know I I didn't really know what I thought it was about I knew that she wrote in this one and then flights and they seem such different titles it's like how do I reconcile this Uh, I didn't recognize that the title was a quote from Blake that I should also say Yanina is is very obsessed with William Blake um I will say I I probably didn't give it this book the best chance because I listened to the audiobook and I think maybe it's the sort of book that I would I shouldn't have tried to do as an audiobook um, because the writing was beautiful and and I prefer that to be able to sort of read that on the page but I, yeah I found it very interesting and odd and I thought uh, yeah Yanina is this wonderful character really well realized very in some ways frustrating and as I say misanthropic but also very the reader empathizes with her a lot particularly I mean I don't know what it's like to read this book as a meat eater or indeed someone who does hunting but uh since I'm quite passionately anti-hunting and also a vegetarian I I agreed with a lot of the things that she was most strident about which is you know she's very very anti-hunting believes it's essentially murder um and uh the community is filled with people hunting including uh a priest who believes that hunting and um, is is sort of God given right, uh, and there's a note at the back of the book, I believe. I think they read in the in the sort of note at the end of the audiobook that whilst obviously he's a made up character, what he said is based on things that actual priests have said. So I was fully on board with her not agreeing with any of those things. Um, I think uh, we won't give away the ending, but I was sort of confused a bit by Joanna because it seemed to me so obvious who had done these killings that I wasn't sure if it was meant to be a twist or not. What, what do you, again, we're not going to say who did, but do you think it's meant to be a twist? Well, yeah, because I mean, I didn't see that coming at all. Really? Because at the first, like from page one, I was like, it's so obvious. <laughs> okay. <laughs> interesting. And I never get these things. Cool. It's just, yeah. No. And my um, friend at work, was recently reading it for her book club and every day she'd come in having read more and we'd talk about it and um she just kept saying yeah you know I just I just can't work it out and I was like mm-hmm, I'm not saying anything <laughs> and then the day that she found out she came in and was like well I didn't see that coming and I was like, well thank goodness because I didn't either so I do think it's supposed to be a big twist yeah interesting because Obviously, just very sweet, Simon. Well, I, I'm not. I mean, these things normally, normally, and I don't try to be really. I quite like being surprised. But um, again, it's so hard to talk about without giving things away. But I think because I had, I, I wouldn't kill people. <laughs> just to make that clear, <laughs> but I think because I had such empathy with the reasons for the killings that I was like, well, I don't know. It just felt like it fell into place to me. But um, but as somebody, Rachel, who does eat meat, how did you find the the sections? which were very much about the rights of animals. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I found it very, very moving. And I I think as well, um, it's, I thought it was also really interesting in how having that, that passionate viewpoint of caring very, very deeply about the sanctity of life um, and the sanctity of, of animal life was, was seen as something crazy. Um, and and I think the exploration of that, and also coupled with her being an older woman, and the sense that as you're older, you are, 
your views are discounted. I wondered whether if he had been a younger woman, whether people would have seen her views as being less extreme or more understandable in a way. Um, and also, was it 2009 this was published, maybe? Uh, roughly, yeah, I think so. A little while ago. And I think some views that would have seemed eccentric then are very mainstream now. So we've moved yeah. on a lot in terms of the way that people think about environment and our responsibility to it. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, to me, I certainly didn't see her views as being extreme. You know, I was like, yeah, I'm on the same mm-hmm. page, you know. And um, I thought her her anger and um, her sense of frustration at also masculine power and the abuse mm-hmm. was was very recognizable i mean you know i'm sure many of our female listeners will understand what i'm saying when you know female rage is a thing you know you're angry on a daily basis about all of the slights that you fa- you face as a woman in a patriarchal society so uh, having a, a character like janina who who is so angry all the time for me I was I just completely understood it. Uh, I felt like I was seen and heard in a character. You know, it, it's a very powerful depiction of what it is to be a woman in a man's world and I also think I mean obviously I'm I'm not elderly yet but um the I can also see the the fury of of the invisibility of what it is when you get older and nobody wants to listen to you. Nobody mm-hmm. sees you. And I think Salome in Women Talking is is in some ways a very similar character. Mm. Um, or is that, because I was going to say these novels are both centre sort of female rage, but actually there's a lot of characters in Women Talking who I don't feel angry enough. <laughs> but Salome is a very angry character who is, you know, as you say, she, she's been raped. Her, is it her daughter has been raped and she's three years yeah. old? Yeah. Uh, her niece has been raped. There's... Um, and it's it is interesting in that book that her rage is quite contained because even when it's only women talking and this one man taking notes, it's there's this sense that her rage would be too disruptive, uh, and it causes occasional arguments with other people when she does lash out too much. And it is yeah, it's interesting that um, they're so conditioned by the patriarchal society they're in that even mm. amongst themselves. Uh, yeah, the rage has to, has to be sort of pressed down until it can come to a, like, they're looking more like, you know, we need to make a logical decision. This isn't the place for unbridled emotions when, I mean, where else, where, where better for unbridled emotions than this, this conversation. But I thought, yeah, I thought that was an interesting element to it. That isn't, it isn't a group of women just saying, I can't believe this is, this has happened to us. I can't believe how evil these men are. It's a group of women who are often quite different from one another being like, what, what do we do next? And let's focus on that. Yeah, I thought actually uh, you're quite right. I was I was surprised at the lack of overt rage. I think Salome's rage was completely understandable and stands out for being so visceral and being so vocal. But I, I also thought it was incredibly beautiful and powerful in how I can't remember which women probably. Um, what's the one he's more gentle and thoughtful? I can't remember her Is name. Owner. Yes, Ona. She says, I think it's either her or Marish says, um, but the thing is, these the men are also victims here because they have been taught by our religion that their behaviour is acceptable. They've been brought up 
to behave in this way? How would they know to behave differently? And we have to understand that they are just as much victims of of this whole situation as we are. And if we are to move forward as a society, punishing people for behaving in a way that they've always been told is the right way to behave isn't the right way to fix this. And I thought that was a really interesting it was really interesting to depict a woman who has been a victim of violence being able to actually see it from another, see it from that man's perspective in a compassionate way without the rage getting in the way, because I certainly wouldn't be able to look at it from that perspective myself. But I, I thought it was a very interesting portrayal of how um, growing up in a society where there is no violence and where it's all about understanding and compassion and forgiveness can enable you to move beyond rage and to be able to see a situation from that dispassionate and more understanding perspective, um, whether you agree with it or not. Yeah, something I liked about women talking, and I will go on to say there are lots of things I don't like about it, uh, but one thing I do like about it is that it doesn't sneer at religion, and it does sometimes say like men have abused their, this faith or the or their interpretation of it but it doesn't sneer at the women who are s- still have faith and it does say that they've never read the bible themselves they only know what men have told them about the bible which may or may not be what the bible actually says um but it's not a sort of we need to get away from god or we need to get away from even you know being mennonites it's about uh yeah, it's about the way that people have abused that. And I think it would have been very easy for a modern novelist just to fall into a, the, you know, organized religion is is the problem. And it's not, it's the people who are abusing that. Mm. Um, but now the things I don't like about it. Well, since I read th- this one rather than audiobook, can you guess the main thing I don't like about it, Rachel, based on our previous discussions? Um. The main thing you what? didn't like. There's about it. no speech marks. Oh yeah, there's speech marks. Yeah, speech marks. Um, which I found in, particularly annoying in this book because it's meant to be the minutes of August. And like, why wouldn't he use speech marks? They also <laughs> don't ever feel. They also don't ever feel like minutes. It's a weird conceit to make it say I've written these as minutes, and it's not at all like minutes. It's very, you know, just poetic writing. It doesn't. It's, it's never, I don't know, that annoyed me. It does quite annoy me that it's a man <laughs> uh, writing all of it and it's called Women Talking. And I know that's partly, you know, it's illustrating the fact that women there couldn't read and write, but it just felt so male dominant for something that's meant to be about a group of women. Um, I'm just going to keep complaining. I, I thought it was curious to like, take this quite visceral story and set it and set the whole novel in this period of it and i can see sort of what she was going for there but i just it seems odd to me that you've got that shocking story and it's sort of deadened by the way it's written i did find a lot of the characters i didn't really find them distinctive salome and ona were different i did really feel i knew them and they were they came off the page but lots of the others i had to keep flicking back to the list of names and i just found the whole thing quite lifeless i just i was really disappointed in it because i've heard great things about her as a writer and it's such an important and fascinating story and i just found it quite dull yeah i mean i'm not going to disagree with you on all of those points simon to be honest with okay you. okay i think i found it slightly more engaging because i literally just watched the film um okay 
so I could sort of picture the women and because I knew which one was which from the film I could sort of see their faces so it sort of helped me to keep track mm-hmm. of them but you're ac- you're absolutely right the characters do blend into one another it's very difficult to to remember who is who it's also very I found it very difficult to remember how each of them were related to each other mm-hmm. um, because um very sadly so many of the women's children are because of being raped their connections between the family members are, are confusing um but yes I the first huge problem for me was I felt the complete pointless character of what's his face um august uh, yeah august yeah i was gonna say that was like that doesn't feel right but it is his name um of of having him there and having his story as part of the narrative i didn't understand why he was there as a character i didn't think he was necessary it seemed uh, and this whole conceit of well how else would we know this was happening unless someone had written it down i mean it's all a bit frankenstein isn't it we don't need this yeah, that's true but, you know, <laughs> yeah it could just have been an omniscient narrator it could have just been dialogue it could have yeah, yeah you didn't need that. it didn't need it at all so I'm, I'm really not sure why that framework was there unless she was using it to make a point about how you know women's voices can never truly be heard without a filter from a man i don't know but whatever it didn't work for me i felt and i also found it lacking in event or urgency in any way it it was just one of those novels where you know completely incredible story behind it but totally wasted in the way that it was mm-hmm. written um and yeah it also i never at any point felt the urgency of the time limit no that's true because it is set over as you say is it one day two days which mm-hmm. normally that sort of novel it is just like all the time the clock's running down what's going to happen yeah and it's yeah it's only 200 pages or so so it's short but i just yeah i've i definitely felt it dragged rather than felt like compelling to get to the end and i wasn't excited to sort of get back to it no yeah (laughs) i didn't yeah I was. I did feel quite let down by it to be honest because i i'd heard a lot about it and um i i was you know, the subject matter, I think, is incredibly important and, you know, really important that we hear these stories. But, yeah, I mean... I, I guess I, I think I'd rather have read a non-fiction book about this. Yes. I think that would have been much more powerful. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, it would have been interesting to have a sort of nomad land type kind of journalistic um, exploration with maybe some interviews mm-hmm. with the women and that sort of thing. Um, uh, and uh, from a female perspective as well, rather than having this male narrator. So... Yeah, I mean, it waste opportunity, and I, I couldn't, in all good consciousness, recommend it to anyone. However, I would say the film is very good. That is good to know because yeah, I was I wasn't going to watch it, but now I might. I also couldn't work out why impersonating a duck is such a crime in prison. That's a stray sentence for people to to wonder yeah, about. Yeah, wasn't sure about that. But no, the film is the film brings it to life in a way that the book doesn't, and I was certainly in floods of tears at the end which mm. was slightly embarrassing because i was on a plane so um <laughs> but great a great film that's good to know and apparent and um drive your bones i always say that drive your plow over the bones of the dead has also been made into a film i don't know if you've seen that i think in, in polish but, um... oh right well i just saw the play version um in london oh yes was yeah. that good it was really good, though. It wasn't as good as I wanted it to be because it was done by a theatre company called Complicity, which is famous for its physical theatre, and they didn't do very much physical theatre, which was a bit of a disappointment. However, oh. it was um, 
it was really interesting to see how they were able to take this book, which is long and unwieldy, I would say, um, mm. and put it onto onto the stage. So yeah, I I very much enjoyed it. But I had other friends who went to see it who left at the interval. So different views. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, it's, it is unwieldy, as you say. It really does defy genre. And it, some of the people, you know, the marketing blurb around it was like thriller, crime novel, and it it really isn't that. It's it's got this mystery at the heart of it, which either you do or don't guess the solution. But it, but I mean, I don't think a thriller would take a side note of several pages to, or long, long pages to talk about the philosophy of aging or about uh, translation of mm. Blake's poetry, which I will say is the one bit of translation that really did not work for me <laughs> because at one point she's trying to work out how to translate a stanza of Blake's poetry into Polish and gives two options, which obviously both in English, in the English version. So we've got the original Blake in English and two different possible translations of it also in English. And it just, I mean, I must be a translator's nightmare. And it, I, to be honest, I'd just probably just have cut that bit if I were them, but if we're not allowed to do that. Um, that was a bit weird. But other than that, I think the translation captured the voice really well. I mean, obviously I've not read the original, but it felt very confident and consistent. Yeah, I thought it was beautifully written and beautifully translated. And um yeah, a real testament actually to the translator. And I, I think there was a lot of, of talk around the time it came out that actually that, that the Nobel Prize should really have been shared really because mm-hmm. the the work of, and the thing is she she actually has more than one translator. So um, she uses another translator as well. He's amazing for her other books. Okay. Um, and so the, the work that's gone in there to, to translate, and take what is very lyrical Polish, apparently, and turning that into such beautiful English. Um, it was a real pleasure. Like, you couldn't really tell it was translated at all. Um, I I really enjoyed a novel set in a part of the world I don't often read books about. So a book set in Poland um, about Polish rural community I found really interesting. Um, and... For me, I I just I would I had no idea what to expect when I started reading it. Absolutely no idea whatsoever. And it was every page I was like, I do not know where this is going. Um, <laughs> kind of bizarre, but I'm also loving it. It took me a long time to read because it's quite dense and the language is so lovely. You just want to enjoy spending time with it. But it's it raises so many different issues and questions. It's a real kind of kaleidoscope of a novel with loads of different threads and um, kind of uh, meditations on so many different issues, social issues. Um, rural, what do we do in rural communities when so many people have just bought holiday homes and it's empty most of the year? You know, how do we cope with aging in rural communities? What happens when you've lost your job and you've got no income and, you know, you live by yourself? And, you know, what happens when you're living in a community where most people are happy with a lifestyle that you don't like? And how do you hit back back against that when no one wants to listen to you? What happens when you don't get heard? Um, And also so many wonderful, like, small moments, like the wonderful friendship she has with the girl who owns the secondhand clothes shop. I mm. loved her as a character and the relationship she has with her former student um, and seeing that bond between teacher and student going way beyond the years when they're at school together. They both share this love of Blake um, and she is a single elderly lady and seeing that 
family and community that she creates around herself of people she's not related to I thought was really lovely as well um so you've it is a mystery novel it is based around her trying to find out who is killing all of these people um is it animals is it not um but within that it's also a real social commentary on contemporary life in rural Poland and the reality of aging within those communities and I think it's not really central to the book but I think she's very good on illness mm. so it where she describes herself as feeling entirely symptoms I thought yeah. that was so powerful um and I think you know it would have been a fascinating novel if it was just about an elderly woman ordinary life I think the the crime thing in there just makes it more um destabilizing for the reader I guess it makes it yeah. more interesting in some ways I did find it was a book that I wasn't racing to go back to when I wasn't listening to it but it has really stayed with me after I finished it and felt really distinctive and interesting and I think if if and when I read more of her I should read it on the page and then I'll enjoy it whilst I'm doing it because it's not it's not really a sort of book that suits you know a half hour drive to town or something which is when I was mostly listening to it um but yeah, it has it has stayed with me as being a really unusual and distinct novel. I'm glad. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was a real standout, and I did race to get back to it. I've not. I've only read flights. I haven't read. Have I been the other book that came out in English was the Book of Jacob, and it was so big. I just thought, no, I can't go there. It's like one thousand five hundred pages. Um, but I, I would say it was one of the best books I've read in a long time and I would I look forward to rereading it. So Wow. So I mean it's no mystery at this point, but just to confirm, I will be choosing Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. Yeah, likewise. There we go. We're in full unity today. And we can see if that is true of our next episode, where we will be. We've done a couple episodes of more modern books, but we're going back to our comfort period in the next one with *The English Air* by D. E. Stevenson and *The Morning Gift* by Eva Ivetson. Yes, and are we going to say who's going to be? Playing? Well, let's say it. We hope we we should, unless anything goes awry, have a return of guest Claire from *The Captive Reader*. We loved having her last time, and she yeah. suggested these books for next time. So, looking forward to talking them about them with Claire. Yeah, it's towards the end of August. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Just popping on to say you can find all the books and authors mentioned at stuckinabook.com. You can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash TL books where you can get special rewards, including me sending you a book once a month, which is fun. Uh, you can, well, you're listening to it already. You don't need to know where to listen to it, but get in touch at tlbooks at gmail.com. And that's it from me. Bye.